Good morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with where things are. And there are Bibles that are in, in the chair racks in front of you, if you'd like to follow along with us. So you can just kind of open it up to the beginning, start flipping, and you will hit Genesis 5, where we are going to be spending some time today. Before we get there, got a couple things that I uh, want to uh, make you aware of. Uh, the first is that if you were with us for our last mission briefing, and I was not with you for the last mission briefing because I was uh, on sabbatical, but if you were with us for that, then you'll, uh, you'll remember that we had encountered some pretty significant uh, financial challenges as we had some unexpected costs. And so we have been praying and asking the Lord to help us with those things, help us find out how we were going to uh, meet those financial needs. And I want to just share with you a little bit about how the Lord has provided. Uh, just in the course of the past week, uh, we've had some anonymous donors give us $400,000 towards that uh, building fund. And I say that uh, to let you know that uh, that's a, this is intended to, as you can see your mouths are dropped, it's intended to build our faith. Uh, I get caught up thinking sometimes that God has done enough, and he's like, okay, I've given you enough, uh, other people, um, I'm going to take care of them now. And uh, then God just keeps giving us more. And so we are incredibly grateful uh, for his provision for us in that way as we move closer and closer to having this project completed and being able to move in. I knew that would encourage you, and I wanted to uh, share that with you. Hopefully, yes, praise the Lord. Yes, that's absolutely right. That's the right response. Um, we, uh, the, other, uh, the other thing is hopefully I'll have a, a, be less tongue-tied today than I was last week. Um, the first service last week, I, I told the uh, people who stayed at home with their kids that their work was insignificant. Uh, the second service, I told people to turn away from Jesus, and I incorrectly identified a poem uh, on his blindness. It is written by John Milton, not John Donne. Uh, so what we're going to try to do is have a better week, but I got no guarantees of what's going to uh, come out of my mouth, but uh, what... <laughs> Wanted to correct that mistake that I had made last week. Um, you should be in Genesis 5 if you want to follow along with us. I want to tell you about this song that I just accidentally came across a few weeks ago. It's by this, uh, it's by this group named Confetti, which I don't think is famous, and I had never heard of them, but then I'm old now, and so I haven't heard of what everyone else has heard of. Uh, I'm not recommending it. Uh, not everything I say is a recommendation. There's some very not suitable for church or home language in some of their songs. But they, the song that I heard of them expresses uh, something important, uh, a question. It expresses a, an important question that many people have. Probably many of us in here have had questions like this. There may be people today here with us who have this very question. The song is called, Dear God... And it begins this way, Dear God, where'd you go? You haven't been answering your phone. Not saying I'm mad, but you should come around more. Then when you get to the bridge, <clears throat> they say, I bite my tongue, but it can't change how I think. 
I talk to you because I can't afford a shrink. It's the everyday people who do the ugliest things, and it's never going to change. So you should come around more. That song, I think, really captures the ethos, the, the heart cry of a lot of people. If God really exists, like you say He does, He sure does seem indifferent to all the wickedness that's going around. Every time I flip on the TV, I see that we have sunk as human beings to new lows in what we are capable of doing to each other. So we ask the question sometimes, has God just ghosted us? Is He out? Does He care? Is He indifferent? This is a, this is a question that Christian people ask. And if you're too Christian to ask that question, then you're too Christian for the Bible. Because the Psalms are full of questions like this. Questions like, how long, O Lord? How long are we going to live in a world where it seems like all this evil is taking place and you're not going to do anything about it? It doesn't, even, it doesn't seem like it's even on your radar. Like, what could be bigger than some of the things that are happening? God sometimes appears indifferent to evil. And for some of us, this isn't just a question that we see as we flip on the news. It's a very personal question. Because there are people here this morning who have had horrible things done to you. Evil has touched you in very specific ways that even remain with you. And the question in your mind is, God, how could you have let this happen? And why does it seem like you don't seem to care? Why do the people who have done this just get to go on and live their lives while I'm stuck with it? These are real questions. We want to answer that question today from the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. When we're asking the question, how does God feel about the wickedness and evil that has been done to us? How does God feel about the wickedness and evil that we have done? How does God feel about the wickedness and evil that is in the world around us? We're going to start in chapter 5 today, the second of 10 sections in the book of Genesis. There are 10 major sections following the introduction of Genesis, and each one of those sections is indicated to us by a handy-dandy little phrase that tells us that new section is starting. Do you remember what that phrase is? I heard it. I heard it. These are the generations These are the generations. So as you're reading through, you can underline whenever you see these are the generations because that's that's tipping you off to the fact that we're starting a new section. Uh, uh, When we ended in May, uh, as as we started the year out in Genesis, we ended in May. You might remember that in in May we finished chapter 4, and chapter 4 is a pretty difficult chapter to read because it's the recording of the first murder. And it's not, murder's bad enough, but it's not your garden variety murder 
It's, it's a murder of one brother uh, against another. And after that occurs, Cain still seems rebellious, even in God's, uh, God's judgment to him. And then we see Cain's descendants. We see he's got some pretty wicked descendants that follow after him. And, and the trajectory of humanity is not looking great. But chapter 4 ends on a brief little note of hope. This note of hope at the end of chapter 4 says this, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And when we read that, we think that perhaps humanity is going to self-correct. Maybe people are going to return to God. Maybe we're going to turn things around. And that leads us into that second section beginning in chapter 5. Chapter 5 contains a genealogy that goes all the way from Adam to Moses. That's the entirety of chapter 5. We're not going to take the time to read the entirety of chapter 5 together. But I do want to point out three features uh, of chapter 5 before we move on to chapter 6. The first thing you'll notice as you're working through chapter 5 is the unusually long lifespans. You've got people living 600, 700, 800, 900 years, which was probably very difficult on the social security system if they were thinking only a few years past 65 and we're making it into the 900s. But there's these unusually long lifespans that are occurring. In fact, kids, if you're ever in a, a, uh, a, a Bible knowledge contest and somebody asks you, who's the oldest person in the Bible? It's Methuselah. He's found in this chapter and he lives to be 969 years old. So you might want to write that down. So you look good at the, in, the, uh, in the Bible knowledge contest. Uh, you notice these long lifespans here, and when you try to start lining up all these lifespans, it's, it's difficult, it can be tricky, but the bottom line about it is that because of these long lifespans, there are many theologians and, and people who have studied the Bible who, who see that many of these people are contemporaries with each other. In fact, Adam's lifespan comes very close or even overlaps with the lifespan of Noah. And this is important for us because we often think, okay, we've got these, these long spans, so we're talking, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years between people, and things get lost in that time. But they're actually not getting lost because these people actually know each other because they won't die. <laughs> they live and live and live and live. There's a second uh, item that I want to point out from here from this genealogy in chapter 5, and that's the section about Enoch in verse 23. If you're there, look at verse 23 in Genesis 5. It says, Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, if you're just reading that verse in a vacuum, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God, for God took him, what exactly does that mean? Well, we know what it sounds like, but think maybe it can't mean that. The Bible actually clarifies that for us in other places. For example, the same language that's used here is used of Elijah being taken up to heaven. Remember, Elijah goes up to heaven in a chariot of fire. He doesn't, he doesn't die, and then Elisha follows him. Well, the exact same language in Hebrew that's used for the story of Elijah is used here. But if that isn't enough for us, Enoch makes a few appearances in the New Testament and in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5, it's one of those appearances, the Bible explicitly says that he was taken up into heaven. 
And I point that out simply to say that even here in Genesis chapter 5, there are hints of an afterlife because Enoch is being taken somewhere by God after this life. He's not going to die. There's a third detail I want to draw your attention to, and that's Lamech's statement in verses 28 and 29. You can look there if you want. The Bible says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Isn't that interesting? The Bible doesn't tell us that God gives any revelation to Lamech, appears to him. We don't know anything about this. But at the very least, we have Lamech making an expression of hope about his son Noah that we really don't know anything about yet because, I mean, we do because we've read the story before, but if we hadn't, uh, we wouldn't. Uh, uh, and we, we can see here that Lamech is specifically referencing the curse so going back to the fact that there's overlap between a lot of these generations of people because of the long lifespans, there's a lot of years separating Lamech from Adam, and yet Lamech is very aware of the curse on the ground and is even giving an expression of hope that perhaps his son is going to be the one that's going to finally bring rest and reverse this. Okay, so, so there's that. So we've got these little indications of hope that maybe humanity is going to turn back to God. The end of chapter 4 says they're calling upon the name of the Lord. We've got people like Enoch, who the Bible specifically says he walks with God. He's taken up into heaven without dying. We've got Lamech still making an expression of hope that the curse is going to be reversed, maybe even through his son Noah. We've got hope until we come to chapter 6. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, says this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we were riding high for a moment, seeing all these positive breadcrumbs sprinkled through the text, but then we get to the beginning of chapter 1, and the Bible tells us that God looks at the creation, and He basically makes the conclusion that every thought and intent of humanity's heart is only evil continually. And then Moses, the author of Genesis, provides us with exhibit A that proves that statement. The problem is, Exhibit A that proves that statement is one of the most difficult and strange passages in the entire Bible. Now, I wish, this is the, this is the downside of preaching through books, uh, I can't say, what's that over there, and flip over to, pay, to chapter 7 and just conveniently skip this. But I will tell you this, I'm going to give you some options of what could be going on here. And I'm choosing my words carefully when I say options of what could be going on here. 
I'm not going to spend nearly as much time on this as some of you might hope that I would spend time, and I'm going to let you down. I'm not going to deliver you the one. This is what it means, okay? Because that would be, that would be wrong of me to do. <laughs> there are many people who have been much smarter than me throughout the ages who have kind of given the range of options of what this could mean and said, but your way could be right too. So let me give you the three main options for what, we're, what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the sons of God, and the daughters of men, and the children that they have together. Here's the first option. And if you want to know, well, who are the kinds of people that represent these kinds of things, these, uh, these things, then I'll, I'll give you some names. Meredith Klein, Old Testament scholar, has written a lot about Genesis. This is his, this is his understanding of, of uh, the passage. He sees the sons of God as representing human kings, human dynastic leaders, uh, uh, but they're, they're human leaders who take uh, harems, multiple wives for themselves, and God disapproves of this. What he's taking is his contextual clue there is what we see happening at the end of chapter 4, where chapter 4, we see Lamech now taking multiple wives, and there's the, there's the, the, the guess that perhaps something like that is happening here, and perhaps even something that is illicit and coercive is taking place. That's one option. Option number two sees the sons of God as angels, specifically fallen angels, and then the daughters of men as, as humans. And representative of this view are early church fathers like Irenaeus, Clement, Tertullian, others take this view. Now, on first blush, you may say, well, that sounds absolutely nuts. There's no way that can be it. Let's cross that off the list. However, the Old Testament does use the phrase sons of God to describe angels. At the beginning of Job, it talks about God's throne room, and it uses this phrase, the sons of God, to refer to the angels who gather, who gather with Satan around God's throne room to make an accusation against Job. Okay, so there's that. And then furthermore, the New Testament does a couple of things. There's a few places in the New Testament, like in the book of Jude and in the book of Second uh, Peter, where, where the Bible speaks about judgment on fallen angels, and in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8, there's a specific connection. You can write that down, 2 Peter 2, 4 to 8. There's a specific connection between fallen angels, the judgment on them, and events that happened in Noah's day. And so if we're asking, well, what events happened in Noah's day that could possibly be coordinated with that? Here's one at the beginning of chapter 6, okay? So that's option number two. Option number three... It's championed by people like Augustine, Luther, Calvin, sees sons of God as the godly line coming from Seth and the daughters of men referring to the ungodly line of Cain. Now, this is going back and doing some review, but one of the things that we've seen as Genesis has, pro has progressed is that there is the, the seed or the descendants of the serpent... And there is the seed of the descendants of the woman. And this, these descendants, these lines of this, this line of descendants 
are in constant conflict with each other. Okay, we see, we see Cain's seed, his descendants moving in a particular direction. Uh, Adam and Eve have another son named Seth, and we know that through the line of Seth, the Messiah is eventually going to come, but there's, there's constant conflict between these two lines, and so there are some interpreters who see that as what is going on. Okay, now, let me throw another thing in there. There's the Nephilim. <laughs> The Nephilim. Okay, a lot of the words in your Bible are translated. So, there's a Hebrew word for humans, and there's an English word for humans, and, and you choose the English word for humans, but there's times in translation when the translators look at a word and they say, well, I don't know what that means, so I'm just going to give you the English letters of the Hebrew letters. That's not a translation. <laughs> That's just... That's just, uh, uh, well, uh, an example uh, of, of is, is Adam, Adam. Those, those Hebrew letters would, tr- would be transliterated in English as simply A-D-A-M. Okay, I don't know why I said that, but it's a little, little, little thing for you to know. So Nephilim, that's not a translation, that's a transliteration. Because we don't know exactly who these people are, and there are differences of opinion about how they fit into the text. So let me just give you a few notes about that. The Nephilim could be, according to some, in option two, that's our fallen angels and humans option, the Nephilim could be the product, the children of those relationships. It's possible. There are other people who would say the Nephilim are simply mentioned here as being contemporaries of this situation because they existed, the Bible specifically says, both now and afterward. And the Bible actually references the Nephilim again in the book of Numbers when the spies come back and say, I don't think we can take over this land because there's giants and Nephilim there. So now you've got all the pieces. I'm not even going to tell you what I think. You can limber up your fingers, do a little Googling of sons of God. You can start studying. There's lots of good resources out there. You can try to come to a conclusion of what you think is most likely to be going on here. There are pros and cons to each. However, with that said, I think the point of this is relatively clear, even if we're not able to say with certainty exactly what was going on here. Remember that the the responsibility of all humanity is to be fruitful and multiply, right? So there's there's childbearing, there's filling the earth with image bearers who are going to reflect God and represent Him on earth. There's the dominion mandate to go out and, and cultivate the earth to, in essence, make the whole earth Eden. And, and this, whatever it is, what option you land on, is somehow a perversion of that. The kind of propagation that's going on here is a perversion of what God intends to be happening on the earth. And it's so egregious in the Lord's sight that there are lots of wicked things because it's clearly said there's only evil all the time going on. Moses chooses that example as exhibit A to how bad this situation is. That's, I think, the point of the passage 
regardless of where you land on the particular pieces of it. So, people like Lamech or, or Enoch or even Adam, even us, may be asking the question as we, as we look at this, dear God, you answering your phone anymore? Do you see everything that's going on around here? Does it matter? Does our suffering matter? Is it just going to keep, are, are, are these people who are doing this stuff going to pay? What do you think about this, Lord? And the great thing about this passage of Scripture that we're studying together this morning is that it actually gives us some great answers to that question that even pop duos today are asking. If you've got your Bible open to Genesis 6, look down at verse 6 now. It says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. From from the very beginning... The Bible gives us this truth that I want us to think about this morning. God is not indifferent towards evil. God is not indifferent towards evil. It may look like it. It may at times feel like it. But God is not indifferent to the evil that is going on all around us and this passage of Scripture gives us three of God's responses to evil, none of which are indifference. Three responses to this evil. And for the first two, I'm borrowing the the wording of Alan Ross, who is a Genesis scholar. But one of God's responses that we see here in verses 6 to 8 is found in verse 6. It's his pain. His pain. The Bible tells us something that ought to arrest our attention when we read it. It tells us that God regrets creating humanity and that it grieves him to his heart. Genesis is killing me today. We got the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim, and now we've got God regretting. And we ought to be asking our, uh, a question, what does the Bible mean When it says that, because if we don't read it correctly, it could sound like God didn't see this coming. When you you say, I've got regrets, what do you usually mean? If I could do it all over again, I would do this and this and this. We'll say something like, if I knew then what I know now... I wouldn't have followed that path. So that's the kind of regret that we have. It's the regret that finite beings have who make wrong choices or who make the best choices they can with the information they have, but they don't have all the information. Finite beings, that's, that's, that's the way we regret. But we can't say that of God, right? Right? The Bible presents a a very different picture of God. The Bible does not present a picture 
of a God who sees how the creation is gone, he sees it's wicked, and says, man, I, if I could have a do-over on this whole creation thing, it'd be different. It'd be different. Because the Bible gives us a picture of God who is so sovereign over his creation that not even a, a casting of the dice, Proverbs says, is outside of his sovereign control. So how are we supposed to understand this language of God's regret? Well, thankfully there is a passage of Scripture that I think helps us. It's found in 1 Samuel 15. The brief setup of 1 Samuel 15 is that God has made Saul king, and Saul is not being a very good king. He's not obeying God. He's not following God. He's not doing the things that God has told him to do. And so God sends Samuel, his prophet, to deliver a message to Saul in 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, verses 10 and 11, this is what it says. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret, there's our word, regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. But later in the chapter, the Bible also says this down in verse 29. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Okay, which is it? Do you regret or do you not? And this is the Bible's way of telling us that, yes, God expresses regret, but he does not regret the way humans regret. He doesn't regret in the sense of, I didn't see this coming and I'm going to need some sort of do-over. He doesn't regret in the sense that there are things happening outside of his creation that are outside of his sovereign control. You and I regret, you and I experience, well, I'll, I'll say something about that in a minute. This is connected to a doctrine called impassibility. And I'll, I'll put the, the definition on the screen behind me. Impassibility is the fact that God does not experience emotional changes either from within or affected by His relationship to creation. When you and I experience a passion or an emotion, okay, something is happening to us that we're responding to. Okay, we're changing states. God doesn't change. He's not being bounced around emotionally by the things that are happening in His creation. There aren't, there aren't, there aren't a few things that are outside of control, His control that are making Him have to change course or rethink things, or ask for a do-over. But we should be careful to understand this clarification from a man by the name of Derek Thomas, who says that this doctrine is not saying that God knows nothing of emotion or feeling, whether joy and delight or pain and suffering, because the Bible says that He does. Rather, it's saying that no one or thing may impose suffering, pain, or any such sort of distress on God in such a matter that God experiences such things unwillingly. Stuff happens to us. Things don't happen to God in the same way they happen to us. 
God regrets, but he does not regret like a human regrets. Now let me just say, we are human beings, finite human beings, doing the best we can to take all the data that the Bible says about our infinite God and try to wrap our small minds around it. And so I'm doing the best I can. Theologians that are writing the books are doing the best they can. We know all these things are true and all these things aren't, can't be true, and so we're trying to harmonize those things together, and we ought to do that sort of thing so that we don't create a picture of a God who's like, wait a minute, <laughs> can I have a do-over? <laughs> But let's hold these mysteries in, t- in tension and be careful to affirm what the Bible affirms. Sometimes we want to out-Bible the Bible. Sometimes we want to protect the Bible. It didn't say it quite right, so let me tell you what it says. Make no mistake about it, but the Bible tells us that God sees the evil on the earth and it grieves him to his heart. And that ought to be helpful to you. Because when we're looking around at all the things that are happening and wondering if God cares, we've got specific information of God's revelation of himself which says, it may seem like I don't care, it may feel like I don't care, but be assured, evil grieves me to my heart. Let me personalize this for some of you who have been the recipients of great evil in your life and are wondering, is God somehow indifferent to that? Is the fact that God doesn't regret like a man mean that he just kind of sits above my pain and there's no connection point to it? And you need to understand that that is not the case. God sees the evil done to you and it grieves him to his heart. He is not indifferent to the evil and wickedness that we see and experience. How does God respond? Well, we see his pain in verse 6. In verse 7, I want us to see his plan. God says something terrifying in these verses. I'm going to blot out every living thing I've made. This isn't some wacky world ruler hovering his his hand over the nuclear switch that can do great damage to everybody. This is someone who has the capability of blotting out all life from earth. We see here that God does not simply grieve the wickedness that's in creation, but that he intends to do something serious and significant about it. And there is both an assurance for us and a warning in this. The assurance is that God has not ghosted us, that he sees the evil that is done, and we can rest in his handling of it. Now that's easier said than done, right? We don't need to pretend, because we're in church, 
that God's doing it the way we think it ought to be done. Every one of us would do things differently if we could tell God to do it the way we want to do it. Okay, you get a little bit of leash and then boom, let's take care of business here. The Bible tells us this in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let me tell you what this verse doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that we've got a verse that says God will take care of justice, and so we are free to turn a blind eye at the injustice all around us and do absolutely nothing about it because God will take care of it someday. Okay? That's not Christian. But what it does mean is that we're keeping score on some stuff. Okay, some of us are really good in our relationships about keeping score. Some of us are very good scorekeepers. I've got that internal board, and I've got... Marks, and I'm running out of room because you've done this and this and this, and I could rehearse them to you if you would like. We have an internal justice meter that's keeping score, and that's not necessarily all bad. Okay, we've been made in God's image. We have a desire for justice to be served. We know when, when wrong goes unpunished, all of those things are, are good, But the Bible tells us, listen, you Christians are going to have to let go of your need to see justice happen all the times, vengeance happen in your timetable and in your way. And those of us who will hold on of, I've got to make sure this is right, I've got to get even, I've got to have my revenge of the people around me, that's going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt them. What we need to do instead, what God's people need to do instead is step back and say, there are a lot of things that are unfair. And I should seek justice wherever it is that I can seek it, but there are some wrongs that I cannot make right. And I can, even let the bitter, I can either let the bitterness of those wrongs seep into my heart and poison me, or I can trust that there is a God in heaven who has said, leave it to me. I'll handle this. That's hard to do. I want to handle it. I want to see it handled. Be sure that the loop is closed. Most of us don't get to handle it. There's an assurance here for us that God is going to repay, that God is keeping score of every evil deed. But there's a warning here to us as well We're glad that God is keeping score. We're glad that God knows what it is. We want Him to enact His judgment against everybody, but not us. Because they're the bad people. People around me are bad. But the all-knowing, perfect judge of the earth knows every evil act that every single one of us has done. And there's a warning to us. We oftentimes dip our toe into sin, look around, 
something's happened. Take a step. <laughs> okay, he's busy. Good. I'm going to do my own thing. <laughs> we move towards sin sometimes. Seems like God's got bigger fish to fry than me. We become emboldened. We escalate our sin, fooling ourselves into thinking that God doesn't care or that there won't be consequences. But God is not indifferent to evil. God is keeping score. You can be sure of it. Which leads me to the third response. The final response that we see here in verse 8, it's His grace. We've seen His pain. We've seen His plan. I want us to see His grace. In verse 8... Chapter 6, the last verse says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Hebrew word that's translated favor here is a Hebrew word that's translated in other places in the Old Testament as the word grace. Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I want to impress something upon you before we move into the the later parts of, of these chapters, the Bible's going to go on to say good things about Noah, that he's a righteous man, that he does all that God commands him to do. It's going to say that several times. But the very first word that the Bible tells us about Noah is that he is a recipient of grace, and then in fact, the grace that he's given precedes his goodness. Noah is not selected because he's the rock star of human beings. He's selected because he finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, the way any of us find it. I tell you these things this morning as we're considering the the idea of, of God's seeming sometimes indifference to evil. I'm telling you these things this morning that you may take heart. But judgment is coming. There is a, a good a good resting in God's judgment. The same way that we rejoice when a guilty verdict is returned in court against someone who has done unspeakable evils. We're glad that justice has been served. And the Bible tells us that God is fully aware, fully keeping score. The Bible assures us that the wrongs are going to be made right. We also need to take heart this morning that even though God keeps score, that even though God has been keeping score for every single wicked deed that you've done and I've done, there is a way of showing us grace. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. (laughs) Every single one of us has a heart's cry for justice for everyone but me. But it doesn't work like that. 
God is aware of every evil thought and word and deed, the things that you have done and the things that you have failed to done. He has most certainly been keeping score, and yet He will not hold an ounce of it against you if you are in Christ. And do you know why He will not hold an ounce of it against you? Because all that judgment that you and I have earned was poured out on His Son at the cross. And God's plan was to do that in Christ for you before the ages began. Which is why the Bible stops and just explains, ex- exclaims at times, blessed is the person whose sins God does not hold against him, whose sins he will remember no more. You may be a perpetrator of things you deeply regret. You may be a, 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 a significant part of the evil, and God promises that in Christ you experience none of what you deserve. If you're with us this morning and you don't know Jesus, then we would implore you to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Because God is a just judge, His justice is not applied unevenly. He knows. He is not indifferent to the sin in our hearts. And yet He has made a way for you to escape His judgment and His wrath by turning to Jesus in faith and repenting of your sins. What I would call upon you to do this morning is to fling yourself on the mercy of Jesus. You can't bridge the gap between you and your Creator. But Christ has done that in His death and resurrection. We'd love to talk more about that with you if you need to. Let's pray and ask God to help us process the evil around us in faith and hope. Lord, we do look around and see the evil everywhere. We seem to be unable to be shocked anymore about what we are capable as human beings of doing to each other. And for some, this is not just a... a broad question. It's a question that touches their own lives. They wonder if you're indifferent to what has been done to them. I pray that whatever the needs are, that the Word would meet those needs this morning and that that we would be filled with hope, that you see evil, that you intend to judge, but hope that, that we are part of the problem. We have been forgiven and freed in Christ. And if there is someone here who does not know Jesus in that way, I pray that their consciences would not rest until they find peace for their souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.